Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, the place where we dive deep into the minds of incredibly talented and creative individuals and try to unravel the mysteries behind their inspirations. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs, and joining me on this fantastic journey are the uncanny co-hosts of True Fiction, Norbert Yates and Marshall. How's it going tonight, fellas? Doing great. Ready to go. Tonight's guest is a horror artist who specializes in book covers. Her art has appeared on the cover of the legendary Weird Tales magazine, and she was selected by Bram Stoker's great-grandnephew to create the cover for the 125th anniversary edition of Dracula. She has illustrated works by New York Times best-selling authors, including Jonathan Mayberry, Brian Keene, and Christopher Golden. Her art has been commissioned and collected throughout the United States and overseas. True Fiction welcomes Lynn Hansen to the show. I mean, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really tickled to be here. Lynn, we are so happy to have you joining us tonight. How are things going? Oh, crazy busy. That's what you want, right? Maybe not the crazy part, but the busy <laughs> part's kind of nice. So. Absolutely. It's not just book covers, because I know right now you're wearing a dress that you made. <laughs> and it's awesome. I love the all the great skulls and stuff. So I know you've got a collection of those. I'm primarily book covers. I've been doing this for 13 years now and horror exclusively for, I always did as much horror as I possibly could because I've been a horror fan since the time I was tiny, but exclusively horror for about the last seven years and maybe five years, a bunch. But last year I decided that I wanted to enjoy my art in different ways. And so I, I decided to make myself some dresses that I could wear to conventions and it would be fun. And then I thought well, maybe other people might want them. And I don't have a store. I have an old school like catalog that I take to shows. It has basically the different dresses and things that I offer. And then I have an old school paper order form because we used to buy things before the internet. It's crazy, right? Like crazy. Uh, so I started this thing called Positively Creepy, and that's my clothing and lifestyle brand. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I enjoy anything scary, creepy, or anything like that. So I, I think that's awesome. It's delightful to let people enjoy it on a day-to-day -day basis. People will send me pictures of them wearing their dresses or their shirts or curled up in their blanket. And it's just my people are not, we like Halloween, but we are not the Halloween people. We are people going to have horror as part of our day-to-day -day life. It's 365 days of Halloween for us. <laughs> I, I definitely get it. That's the thing about me and my family. We love horror and uh, I love Halloween, but it's not enough. <laughs> Halloween's rough for me because I'm so busy. I'm going from, I love haunted houses, the little spooky JC haunted houses or whatever, Eagles Club puts on. I love those things. And uh, we try to stay really busy with all those. When I was a kid, it was all these small little haunted houses. Now they've got these huge five, six attraction places that pull me in every year. And I love them. So <laughs> 
I wish they had them did, all year. <laughs> I did an event a couple of years ago on a haunted hospital ship in West Virginia. Ooh. And it was wow. the coolest thing ever. So they had an author signing and then I got to share my heart. And then we got to tour the amazing haunted hospital ship. It was from World War II. It had been a hospital ship during that time and been repurposed. And I've done tons of haunted houses through the years and just, but from the time I was tiny, my earliest memories are watching the late show with my dad on one side and my big brother on the other and my mom clear on the other side of the house because she was not a horror fan. I've loved it since the time I was tiny. I love your work. I know you do a lot of work for this one guy, this Jeff guy that you know really well. <laughs> yeah, Jeff Strand does take up a chunk of my commissions. <laughs> but he's my husband. We've been married 26 years now. And I still use my middle and my maiden name for all of my horror type stuff. But we actually met at a horror convention back in the day. So, oh, wow. In a town that neither of us were from. So that was pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. And yo, so was he selling his wares and you were doing the same or? Before I was an artist, I was a writer actually. Oh, okay. And cool. so we went to the World Horror Convention in Atlanta in 1995. And Jeff had nothing published. And I had a couple of short stories out, including one in Dave Barnett's Into the Darkness magazine. And Dave was so cool. He knew everybody, but he just was not like an extrovert when it came to talking to folks. So he'd be like, over there, that's Ellen Datlow. Go give Ellen Datlow a copy. He'd be like, over there, that's Harlan Ellison. Go give Harlan Ellison a copy. And so I did that. And I took one look at Jeff and I decided that he wasn't an agent, an editor, or anybody important. And I totally blew him off. (laughs) And he's one of the few people I think Dave actually made buy a copy of the magazine. He bought a copy of the magazine and then he sent me fan mail. And he didn't realize that that was the first fan mail I'd ever got. (laughs) And so we started hanging out online before you could actually even see people online. And then he got a three paycheck month and flew to Tampa where I lived. He lived in Tucson and then he stayed for 10 days and then flew home and saved money to move to Tampa. Oh, wow. But... Yeah, we have, we've both been part of the horror community for a gazillion years. And Jeff is an amazing horror writer. He's got so many fun books out there. And I don't always say that about horror books, that they're fun. But Jeff (laughs) has some, a lot of fun with his stuff. And I like that. He's got, I think, 53 books now, something like that. And uh, he's been so prolific that basically it used to be he would finish a book and he's like, can I have a cover now? And I'd be like, sure. Now it's like he's finished the book and I'm like, can I have a cover now? And now you have to be on the list. <laughs> and so my cue, my schedule has untitled Jeff Strand novel periodically through my <laughs> year so that I can just make sure that I don't overbook myself. I am, I'm currently booked out through March of next year for commissions. I know, right? It's insane. I I always save like a slot or two for super amazing 
If Weird Tales calls again, I could totally do another Weird Tales cover. Somehow I'll figure it out. But I always save a couple of small slots here and there in case there's a really cool thing. Like I got, I just got a project to do for Falstaff books. They're doing an Edgar Allan Poe anthology, the inspired anthology. And I've always wanted to do Poe-inspired art. So I'm like, yeah, I'm totally there. I love your work. And we talked a while back when I met you at a convention. And I just love your process. And I met another writer there. And you are doing her book cover, Bridget Nelson. She has some new books coming out. And the covers are just the best. And I looked at them and go, is this horror? And then I just... And then when I read it, I was like, oh, I love these. I've, And I will tell you the truth. I usually buy a lot of audiobooks and I buy a lot of ebooks, but I want to get the physical copies of those. I love the covers. You'll like the interior too, because I actually did illustrations. Each of those, the, her collections are Sweet, Sour and Spicy. And then What the Fuck Was That? Yes. <laughs> and each one showcases three different stories and they actually did illustrations for each of the stories as well. And they have, although the covers have kind of this retro pinup disturbed women on the cover. So one is cut in half. The other one is kind of bathing in blood. It's, but they're so bright. Uh, bright. Fire, right? <laughs> but that's the thing is one of the things that I love about creating horror art is that especially when I take on projects that are a little bit different, right? So both those covers dropped, both those books dropped at the same day. It was very kind of a unique project. And to get to do, what can I do that will get it attention? How can you stand out from all the other covers, right? And so these particular books, they really felt like they had the Bridget Nelson vibe. So she's really fun and quirky and a little bit kind of saucy, but oh, totally twisting. <laughs> and to get to create something, her first book was a collection as well called A Bouquet of Viscera, which yes. the cover was flowers made out of vintage medical illustrations. So they're like severed spines and lungs and all kinds of great nasty stuff. <laughs> And then when you look at it, it's just like, oh, there are flowers. Oh, but right. they're not. <laughs> and uh, it got her a, a lot of notice for her very first collection. It's a double Splatterpunk Award nominee this year. Wow. And she actually, her very first, her ver- as her very first book, self-published, she sold enough to qualify for active HWA membership, which is like crazy. Because on one book, (laughs) yeah, she's doing really well. And so it's been a delight because right now I have so much work in my queue that I only work on projects that I love. So if I look and I say, oh, this is something that people need to read, people need to take notice of, then it's, then it gives me great joy because there is nothing better on the planet than to get to wake up every morning, create art, read amazing books, create art that helps other people find those amazing books. And then it's like magic. And so I try to, I turn away probably 95% of the commission inquiries I get. Wow. Because 
right now I'm so far booked out, but it's also lots of folks like my art, but I need to be the right artist for them. And a lot of people don't know how to kind of filter through that. And I tried to use my powers for good and not evil. So if it's a bad book, I'm totally booked up. But I'm also often totally booked up. So it's not, if I turn somebody down, it's not that your book was bad necessarily. (laughs) I am crazily booked out. I would tell everybody to go to your site. LynnHansonArt.com. LynnHansonArt.com. And sign up for the newsletter because Lynn gives these fantastic computer backgrounds that have a calendar and a scary picture. They're awesome. And this whole last year, I signed up right after I left the conference with you last July. And and I've just been enjoying the heck out of these and sharing with friends. What I do is every month for my newsletter subscribers, I create an original piece of art, just something I want to make. It's just something that tickles me. And a lot of times I'll get feedback from folks on social media saying, what would you like to see me make? And then I also turn it into a pre-made book cover that folks can buy at a discount. They're an additional discount even if you're a part on the newsletter list. It makes me feel a little bit better about the fact that I'm booked so far out because maybe I'll make something that will connect with somebody that they need. I'd say probably about 85% of the folks that buy my pre-mates, though, are like, I'm going to go write that book. I was wondering about that. Yeah, I was wondering about that. And And I definitely have seen some that are inspiring. But then there are also some. I did a cover for a creepy calendar that was this kind of gold woman with flowers coming out from underneath her skin. And I just made it. I just wanted to make it. I don't know. And I posted on my newsletter. And then I also have a book cover club on Facebook where everybody gets first dibs for an hour or two before it goes out to the rest of the world. But when I did this, Lindy Ryan at Black Spot Books said, I need this now. And what she said, what you don't realize is that I have an anthology that we're editing right now called Under Her Skin. and. It's this kind of gold demon woman with this black kind of blood and the flowers coming out. And it's all women, horror poets. It's an amazing collection. And I was like, if you had asked me what I would make for you for a book that with all women horror poets with that title, I would have made this. <laughs> and so nice. sometimes it just works out really well. Before you make a cover... Do you always read the book or do you try to read the book or how does that work? I always read the book unless I have one client. I work for I work for Joe Conrath. He writes under J.A. Conrath. He's a big thriller author that I've known for 20 some years. And he'll be like, I have this new book coming out. I need it for pre-order. What's it about? Here's the title. That's what I want. I'm like, Really? Okay. I just, are you sure you can't get, the book's not written yet, but I need a cover for the pre-order. I'm like, okay, there you go. So he's the only one that I let get away with not letting me read the book. In fact, I make people send me the book or sample chapters before I even agree to work on the project because I want to make sure that it's a good fit. It happened because one time I had a woman who was really excited and she was a huge fan. And she said, I have this kind of grungy vampire book. It is not what you think it would be. It is got these great epic characters, but 
it is different from all the other vampire novels. I'm like, oh yeah, I would do that. I'd totally do that. And I got it. And it's an urban fantasy. It's absolutely straight up urban fantasy. Oh, and boy. so it needed a woman in a pretty dress on a rooftop with glowy lights. And I'm like, <laughs> oh man, I don't want to do those things. That's not what I do. So sometimes others don't really get what they've got either. And so that's what I love about reading the book is that it's easier for me to come in with clear eyes as a reader and say, okay, what's the thing that's going to show the kernel of the promise of the premise, right, on that book cover? And it's easier for me to see it because I'm not the author who put all their blood and sweat and heart and soul and tears into a book cover. I'm not the editor who fell in love with it. I come in with clear eyes and it's much easier for me to figure out what is the right thing that's going to connect the right readers. Because it's not good enough just to be like, oh, that's a beautiful cover. I want to read it. It better be like, oh, this is my kind of book. Because then you get good reviews, right? Here you go. So it's not just that you don't want everybody. You want the right people. And that's what reading the book does. And that goes with so many people that we work with with the, the artists and the creatives that we work with, it is just, it is the right people. And that's sometimes hard to find. A- absolutely. But it's important because otherwise it's bait and switch. <laughs> oh, I thought I was getting this, but I'm not. I did a cover many years ago now, I guess five years ago. So Jeff Strand and Jim Moore did a book called The Haunted Forest Tour. And The Haunted Forest Tour uh, basically had been around for 10 years, two different publishers, limited edition, and then another publisher. All their fans already had this book and they got their rights back and I swapped to do a new cover. So we, I did this new cover and the cover is basically a giant monster arm coming out of the woods, attacking tramloads of tourists. And so if you expect, if you look at this cover and say, wow, I'd like to read a book about giant monsters coming out of the woods and attacking tramloads of tourists. That's exactly what this book is. <laughs> what this book is. And there's no debating and you're going to be happy. And so if you're like, oh, I didn't know there were going to be monsters in it. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and the book came out, uh, book been around for 10 years that both the, all their fan bases had already gotten. And it became overnight one of their best selling book, a book that had been around for 10 years. Wow. I had a question about being in a relationship as two creatives. Do you work off of each other? Is that like a common practice or do you work individually and then come talk about it? Obviously, there's communication there with the the covers that he writes, but outside of that, other works, do you two communicate on creative projects? Let's see. He posts my newsletter for me every month just so that I don't have... don't have stupid typos going out. It's always good. (laughs) Or that I don't forget something that I should have put in there. But we don't. Most because we'd like to stay married. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's a, there's a, that it's harder to kind of separate the creative impulse from the person. And so it's better for me to be the supportive spouse than to be the collaborator. Oh. And the same thing. It's not like we don't share each other's stuff and talk about each other's stuff, but we are not the people we rely on for 
the majority of our creative feedback. Sounds uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And he's actually, as a cover artist client, sometimes it's really easy with him. And then sometimes it's, so the new, the newest book that he put out called Veiled, and it's a psychological thriller that has this crazy plot twist in the middle. You will not see this coming at all, at all. And I'm like, so can I put this on the cover? No. Can I put this on the cover? No. How about this? No. I don't want to give anything away about the book. Then how are we going to get people to buy the book, Jeff? <laughs> so we went crazy, full-on, big, psychological suspense thriller. Giant, the biggest I've ever put his name on the cover. Big title, big name, tiny little space for Arch. Oh, <laughs> and and hopes that the book description and the fact that there is this crazy twist in the middle will bring the right audience to him for that. But uh, I'm like, but Jeff, I don't get to make prints of that cover. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also do when I do shows, I do fine art prints of some of my favorite pieces. And it's really great because people will be like, oh, I read this book and I love it. Or sometimes they'll be like, I, I don't even know what this is about, but now I have to find it. And that brings me great joy. Do you have a favorite or one that you would recommend for people to check out that you, for whatever reason, is special to you? My two favorite covers I've ever done are, it's hard when it gets down to it. I'm like, okay, so the first one would have to be the cover to Weird Tales magazine. I got to do the issue number 364, the cover for issue number 364 of Weird Tales. It's celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. So to be part of that kind of legacy was amazing because I knew from the minute that I got asked to do the cover that I would be for the rest of my life. Lynn Hansen, Weird Tales cover artist, and whatever else I decided to do. <laughs> and uh, the cover is basically this, this pregnant woman in, a, in this elegant ballgown, and she's transforming into a crow. And it's inspired by a story by Tim Wagoner in the issue, and where the world turns into crow people. And I thought, what would be the most terrifying person to undergo a transformation? And it has to be a pregnant woman. Now, does she have an egg? Is <laughs> what's happening to the baby? Is she's going to birth a crow? Oh my God, that's terrifying. And it was fun to do something that I know had never been on the cover of Weird Tales magazine before. I knew there had never been a pregnant woman on the cover of Weird Tales before. <laughs> yeah, so that was one of my favorite pieces that I've ever done. And then the other one was, I got to do the 125th anniversary edition of Dracula for Bram Stoker's great-grandnephew. He's the executor of the Stoker estate. And to say, oh my gosh, I've got to do something that for a book that everybody is familiar with, that's been around for 125 years with these amazing covers, but then to get to do something that speaks to all that heritage, that, but also speaks contemporary. So the cover itself is this kind of uh, almost abstract bat and a big full moon. And in the, in the bat's wings, there's a typography, hand-drawn typography that kind of emulate the bat's wings. And then there's 
Slane's Castle, which was the castle that served as the model for the interior of Dracula's castle. I'd done all this research because I was terrified, like, how do you stand out amid 125 years of Dracula, right? <laughs> and so I was laying in bed. I had just finished meditating. I always meditate right before bed. It's like the thing that helps me sleep and kind of drifting in between that awake and asleep. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, I know what I want to do. And I had no paper. I had nothing. I took out my phone and my phone drawing app and I sketched it with my finger. But I saw the shape of the bat and I saw the moon and I knew where the typography was going to be. And I knew there was going to be a castle. I sketched it and I'm like, okay. And if you look at the actual cover itself, it actually still has all of those things. It still has all of the things that I originally sketched just out of a moment of inspiration. Those are probably two of my favorite covers. And then also Haunted Forest Tour because it's a transition moment for me in terms of knowing what my art could do to help people in a totally different way. So... Yeah, I still love that cover. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you find ideas and inspiration? Does it come to you like that? And in between meditation or just thinking, or do you usually have to think for a while on an idea before it'll come to you? Oh, I always have to ponder. I read the book. I have a, a, a notebook that has one side has lines and the other side is blank. And so I have like little thumbnail sketches that I can do on the right-hand side. And on the left-hand side, I take notes while I'm writing a book so that I can remember if there's something that's really important. But I will tell you, a really good author, the thing that should be on the cover is usually within the first three to five chapters. Because it should never be the big battle at the end, because then people are going to wait for the big battle. And where's the big battle? But it needs to have the promise of the premise. I know when I get to that point and the first monster comes out of the woods and takes off a tram of Taurus, oh, they're playing fair with me. This is going to be great. Because then a good author is also going to take it to the next level beyond that, right? I love being able to find that thing and help people connect. That is such a cool concept that I've not really thought of until this conversation, but just kind of a little treat, like when you're reading a book and it connects the image on the front, you go, oh, this is a scene from the book and I love it. And that's something I've not really ever thought about how much I enjoy, but it is something that it is kind of a little treat sometimes when reading a book. I think just that extra visualization to make that connection, I think is awesome. I think that's awesome that you're conscious of that too. And help to make that connection. Many of my covers are not verbatim translations of a specific scene. It's sure. the most important thing is that it conveys the style and tone and core of the book. I do a lot of anthologies, for example, and they connect. A lot of that connects with the overall theme of the anthology, not a specific story. Because also if I illustrate a specific story, then sometimes I worry that it's not going to be, that people are going to think that's all it is. But sometimes there are stories that are just like, oh, this is the heart and soul of this anthology. Like I did a folk horror anthology called uh, Lonely Hollows. 
And there was one story that had these amazing kind of creepy animal masks and these this kind of cult with these cloaks. And I'm like, this is like everything that we all think of when we think of folk horror, right? In the woods, in the, it was like, oh. So I took that and then some of the pieces from some of the other stories that also played off of some of those elements and created a cover that had a line of animal mask clad figures walking through the woods and through the hollow, right? So I was able to kind of connect with the theme, but there was also a story that also absolutely had the right vibe for what they were editing. I've done, sometimes I work with everybody from first-time authors all the way up. And one of the things that I do, especially when I work with kind of newer indie authors and publishers, is I've actually, because I always start out and every book cover needs to be able, when it's an inch tall, people better know, I know what kind of book that is. And, and I like this kind of book. Let me see what it's about. And when you click on it and it's two inches tall, it better not just be like, oh, now it's bigger. It better be like, oh, now I have questions. <laughs> and then they're going to flip to the back cover or read the book description. And that cover better match that book description as well. If it does, then people are like, it'll answer some of those questions and ask more. And now people are like, now I have to read the damn book. <laughs> and, and that's what I, I live for. I worked with newer publishers and said, this is what you, I actually ask people to send me the book description when I start a project, because I do believe in that whole kind of linear pro progression. But sometimes I'll get the book description and it will be nothing at all like the what is the coolest part of the book. Like I, really early on, many years ago, I worked, one of my first clients was this really nice uh, former detective who said, I'd like to hire you to do a book cover for a book called The Blue Monster. And here's what I see. I see a palm tree and this giant blue gecko climbing up the side of a big, of the Tampa Police Department building. And I'm like, Oh, this is going to be awesome. We're going to do like this big horror movie. What is this? Sounds great. And he's it's not horror. Like, where's the giant gecko? Where's the giant blue gecko? They call the Tampa Police Department the big blue monster. And he had just the most badass female detective character that recurred through all the books that he had written. And I'm like, dude, that's what needs to be on the cover because. That's what your story is about, not the other way around. And sometimes it's other times where people say, I did a book where it featured a witch's garden. And it was about this relationship between the woman and this, this witch. Did not mention that in the book description. I'm like, maybe you might want to try that again. Because really, this is what's really cool about it. But it's easier for me to see that because I come with clear eyes. I'm not vested in the same way that the author or the publisher is. I like being able to do that. And in order to do all of that, I have to read the books. <laughs> do you have a preferred genre of horror that you enjoy consuming? I will tell you that some of the things that are my least favorite 
So I read widely in horror, and I like the fact that horror can be more than in people thinking of 80s slasher films. That's what they think horror books are. And there's such wide range. So I'm not a huge fan of over-the-top gore. I am not a huge fan of super slow burn. I like to get to the story, man. I am a huge fan of anything with non-traditional voices. So if I can do women horror authors, if I can do people of color, anything that I can do to get a, a different voice out there, I love that. And I love reading that because there's, there's so much out there and there's so much that's, so there's so much really great stuff that's not getting an opportunity to, to really find the right mark. And so those are the ones that I like to work with and the ones that I like to read. The best ones are when I read and I'm like, oh my God, I'm reading this and I'm not taking notes anymore. <laughs> I'm going to have to read again. So Bridget's stuff's like that. Her stuff is super extreme, but I just lose myself when I'm reading her stuff. And Jeff's, my, one other one, my, my favorite books of his is a book called Dweller. And we did a new cover of it because his original cover was one of my early covers. And so we did a new cover and I had to read it again. I'm like, damn it, I'm crying all over again. It was great. <laughs> so I do love my creatures. I do love my monsters for sure, too, when I read. How long does it take you to complete a cover? Does you read the book? Do you count that as part of your time or is that just something that's separate? Does it take you a week or less or more? It can take me. I definitely count reading the book as part of the process, but it can take me anywhere from two days to six weeks. And when it's six weeks, it means that I had to put it down and work on another project in, in between and keep going because sometimes things just require thinner time, right? And sometimes to find just the right thing. And sometimes things take way more time than you ever think they will. <laughs> but I did a couple of years back, it, there's a thing called uh, Inktober in October where basically there's a prompt every day. And then people create art based on those prompts. And so two years in a row, I did Inktober and I created pre-made book covers inspired by the prompts. And it was insane because that's 30 book covers in 30 days. But there was also something kind of liberating about it because you just have to say, okay, I'm all in, jumping in and I'm going and this is what it's going to be. So I I've done those, but I don't do those anymore because one of the other luxuries of having just so many amazing folks that I've worked with is that I only take on stuff that I really want to do. So it's no longer, ah, oh, look, creepy haunted house. I'm like, okay, I can do a creepy haunted house. I'm like, but what makes it really cool? And so that means that the commissions take way longer than they should because there's no longer, I can't fit in the coverage of Dracula in between with a generic haunted house book. Because I don't take those anymore. And so it's a little bit, it's a little bit harder, but I'm trying to keep balance. And that's the whole thing with the creative, right? Is you've got to balance the day-to-day -day life with your creative life. And my newsletter, I started my newsletter because during the pandemic, because I realized that some of my biggest clients were no longer on social media. I saw friends leaving social media just because it was just bombarding them. And I said, I'm going to lose folks that I really care about. And so I started doing this newsletter because I wanted to keep in touch. And it's been a 
a huge help for me to be able to have something every month where I just make whatever I want and then see if it connects with people. Because it gives me that break in with all the commission to just say, okay, maybe I want to do, I did a piece called Junebug that is a skull made out of 140 vintage beetle illustrations. And I need that cover, but I wanted to make that. And then I turned it into a dress and backpack and a whole bunch of other stuff. But I'm, so having that newsletter every month, it's not an obligation. It's a delight. People write me back every month and I get to create whatever I want. And I think that's really important is to have that balance. And it's not something that I've been historically very strong with because I just work a lot, but I try to keep that in mind and do the best that I can. So I was looking at your website and I was trying to figure out what's your process? What do you do? Do you sketch something and then you work in Photoshop? How do you put together a project and what at the end, is it ones and zeros or is there something physical or how does that work? So I work almost exclusively digitally. I start out with thumbnail sketches, what I think I want it to look like, because then I can figure out the other thing I always start with is the typography because it's no good creating beautiful art and then the titles plastered over the middle of it. Or, and then you can't read the title. Because it's not just, oh, you're messing up my art. I'm like, you're messing up the visibility of the brand, which is that title, right? Like the title and that author name. I start with that. So I know, like, I have to figure out where the typography will fit. So sometimes if they've got review quotes or award, Bram Stoker award winner or whatever. And so I start with all of that. And then I know how much space I've got because it's a super long title. Then you've got to figure out along there. So I start with a thumbnail. And then I work with photo assets. So sometimes it's my own photography. A lot of times it's stock art. I've done pieces that have dozens and dozens of different stock assets incorporated. Uh, the book cover that I did, The Hag Witch of Trip Creek, it's very kind of a literary, witchy kind of story. So it had this title and it's this long title. So it's The Hag Witch of Trip Creek. And then all of the flowers in the art are flowers that you'd find in a witch's garden. And it's just, I looked up all of the different flowers that there might be in a witch's garden. And then I found all these different assets and figured out how to bring them all together. The end product is always digital. And then if it's a piece that I really like, then I do fine art prints of them. So I do clay fine art prints. So it's 12 pigments instead of four inks. It's on this beautiful, warm, textured paper called Somerset Velvet that I think also brings that more traditional illustrated feel to it. And, and so it gives people that opportunity to connect with the art unto itself. But I also do, for myself, I also do watercolors and acrylics and oils, pen and ink, but those, all of my explorations in those areas inform creating digital art that has a more traditional illustrated feel. One of the biggest mistakes that I see in digital art is that just because you can make it super sharp and crisp doesn't mean that you should. So if you're sitting in a room and you look clear to the other side of the room, right, and you look at one spot, when you focus on that spot, that's sharp and in focus. And the rest of the world in your peripheral vision is fuzzy. It has soft edges, right? And if you want people to be paying attention to that one spot, 
You need to not make it so that the art screams for your simultaneous attention. That means softening the edges of a lot of things, putting things in shadows or in, in, in distance and taking all of those things that I've learned working in the traditional world and putting them into my digital art. Because the other nice thing about digital art is if somebody comes back and says, oh, maybe she should have six fingers instead of five. I can do that. <laughs> you really need me to it. I don't have to paint over anything and wait for it to dry. So digital art gives me a lot of flexibility as well. I like working with color and I, I usually work with a, a basis of what I think I want something to look like when I start. But I'll, I do a lot of final refinement about three quarters of the way through the process of adjusting colors to really match what it is that I'm trying to tell as a story in that piece of art. But I love it. And it gives me this great flexibility. I also work on, in addition to Photoshop, I work in Art Studio Pro, which is an iPad app for drawing if I'm sketching. Also Adobe Fresco, which I've just recently fallen in love with. I've played with it a bunch, but Adobe Fresco is their painting app that actually has brushes that emulate oil painting. And I've had a lot of fun doing those because sometimes I work on projects where everything is hand-painted and hand-drawn. So I just recently did the the art for Horror on Main, which is, was a brand new horror convention. And it was basically classic monsters, mummy, werewolf, tentacles, Frankenstein, holding up the pole to the Horror on Main street sign. And because she wanted to merchandise all of that, I wanted to make sure that it was all hand-drawn and hand-painted so that there weren't going to be any potential licensing issues. When you talk about stock art, there are certain limits to some of that. And so all of that was hand-drawn. I'm working on a piece right now that's all, it's also all hand-painted and hand-drawn. Takes a lot longer. But I love doing it. I figure the more opportunity I get for those kinds of things, the faster I'll get too. <laughs> I think my final question is uh, you start out writing. Were you a writer or artist first and you did, or was you interested in everything? How do you go from being a writer to a cover artist? I tell people I was a writer first, but I'm not sure that's actually true. Because when I was three, I actually won a coloring contest. So I was a paid artist at three. I got $25 in a Ben Franklin gift certificate. Nice. I still remember what I bought. I bought a wheelbarrow. I don't know why I bought a wheelbarrow, but I bought a wheelbarrow and some fake gardening tools at three. But so that was my first time. And when I was in fourth grade, the summer before my fourth grade year, I got a book on drawing horses. That's kind of the age of when the girls fall in love with the horses. And I started drawing horses. Everybody said that I was the best horse drawer ever. I never got better. I never got better. I stayed at that fourth grade level my, for ages. And I was a writer for a gazillion years. But my day job, I worked in marketing at a historic theater. And so I'd always done graphic design, newsletter layout, ad design, things like that. And Jeff had a book that was coming out from Leisure Books right before Leisure closed their horror line. And I said, so when they crashed and burned, I said, if you want to self-publish this, I'll do the book cover. I think I could do that. And then it took me way longer than I ever thought it would. But that very first cover, it was Wolf Hunt, not the current cover on Wolf Hunt. There was an earlier cover on Wolf Hunt. And, and all of my commissions came from word of mouth from that first, first cover. 
So I did it because we put on the copyright page cover art by Lynn Hansen, lynnhansenart.com. And so people are like, I really like that cover. Can you do a cover for me? And then I connected very early on with Christopher Golden, who's starting to get his rights back from books that have been published in the past. And he did everything from young adult mysteries to high fantasy to everything. So I ended up doing 30, 38 book covers for him over the years in all these different genres, which is how I learned to market and do my market research. Oh, because that's talking about my process. The other thing that I do when I read the book is that I also do tons of market research. So I always ask people to complete this sentence. Fans of blanks book blank will love my book. So it can't just be fans of Stephen King's The Stand will love my book because there are lots of fans of Stephen King's The Stand who are not going to be your fans. But if you can find something that's more on a mid-range, and so I have people help me with that, and then I do my research. So what that book is, and then what other books do people like? What do those kinds of covers look like? And then I also ask people to send me links to three covers in their genre that they love because not everybody is able to articulate what they want or what they think they're like. But if they're all purple, I know that if I do a purple cover for them, they're going to be happy. If they're all creepy landscapes, if I do a creepy landscape, they're going to be happy. But they may not articulate those things without a little bit of guidance. So that marketing process is very important to me as well. Now I got distracted. What was the beginning of the question? The transition from writing to doing covers. And I think you answered that. Oh, except for, so in between all of this, so I actually have seven published, mostly young adult historical horror novels. That's what I wrote, I had, including four for Sparknotes, which is the educational publishing division of Barnes & Noble. And so I worked as a writer for a gazillion years. And I also, and then I worked as a senior editor at a small press publishing company for seven years, which lets me kind of brought a lot of that marketing savvy to it. And then I started working in film. I wrote, produced, and directed a short film called Chomp about a little old woman who sees a college kid coming home drunk from a Halloween party dressed as a zombie. And she thinks he's a real zombie. So she kidnaps him and chains him to a concrete block in her garage. And he spends the whole movie trying to convince her that he's not a zombie. And it played, it played over 70 film festivals in 13 countries. And won or was nominated for over 30 awards. Based on the success of that film, I said, I just wanted to write screenplays. So I started working on trying to get a feature made. I actually adapted one of Jeff's books called Cold Dead Hands into a single location horror thriller. And then I spent five years trying to get people to, to help me make it. And what I learned about the difference between publishing and film was publishing, it's all no until it's yes and then we're like yeah and film is yes until they ghost you and then you're like oh it's about five years ago i got the opportunity to exhibit my art for the first time at a show that i had i had attended for many years and they said are you finally gonna submit something for the art show and i did and i said at the same time i said i'm not going to do anything but horror anymore I don't care. I'm not going to, I don't care who you are or what you want. I'm only going to do horror because this is what I love. So I took all the other covers off of my website and people connected with the art in a much different way when they saw it on the wall, as opposed to on a book, it's utilitarian. When it's on the wall, it's inspirational and aspirational. And it changed my life. I, I sold enough prints at my very first show to cover all of my startup costs for selling prints. I had two weeks later, I had another show. I did almost as well again. And it was a lot of the same folks. 
And then the commissions just went crazy. And I realized that I would much rather stop chasing people to try to say, pay attention to me, I'm awesome, come on, let's make this one that's out. I'd rather stop doing that and start having people, I'd rather have a line waiting for me instead of trying to get into the line to get other people to pay attention to me. And it to me, it's still storytelling. Art is still storytelling, whether I was a novelist first and then a filmmaker, but it's all about story. And now I just get to do it in a single frame. And I don't have to worry about whether or not my makeup guy doesn't show up that day or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. I really like the idea of just doing what you want to do, just doing what feels right. And and I will say that Norbert and I have had uh, fairly the same experience with film as far as shorts as, as you've had. And I don't know how many times Norbert's been published physically as graphic novels, as art. It's a lot more than the films that he made or, or I made. So it's, it's right. a pretty good deal, I think. One thing that we, he liked, we talked about this, where we decided to make a comic book a while back, years ago. It feels like 100 years now and we're still working on it. But <laughs> Norbert is always busy, always working, and he's, he does fantastic work. But the one thing that we decided was when you draw somebody, they're showing up. But if you have an actor, that you're never going to have an actor in a graphic novel that shows up with a beard and a black eye and go, is this okay? <laughs> you know, <laughs> And that's literally happened to us. And I had, a, I had an actress that I shot a bunch with, and she disappeared from the face of the earth. From the face of the earth. I knew she was in a class. I knew the instructor. And she just, no, she, he couldn't find her. She left the class. Oh, yeah. I think about publishing so much better <laughs> now. It's when I worked in Chomp, the very first day of filming, I'd done all these rehearsals. We had done blocking. We had everything was ready to go. And I had this 18 year old kid who was a recommendation from his drama teacher was a friend of mine. And he came to set. We had to send somebody to go get him. That was Jeff. And because his car was broken and he was at State Thespian. So he wasn't there when we were when he was supposed to. I had to call his teacher to go get him. Jeff finally crowded and brought him to set. Within 20 minutes, he's puking in the toilet because he had overindulged the night before at state best beam competition. And within an hour, and we did our, our first set of shots with him. And within an hour and a half, he had called his mother to pick him up from set without even oh. telling me. And the whole movie is two people talking to each other. Oh, no. And it was terrifying. And I had to leave. But my lead actress was amazing. Susan O'Gara. She she was like, I can do this. We'll just we could shoot my stuff. My director of photography said we could totally do this. You've done all the rehearsal. You do this and we'll have Jeff again. He read the lines. And we did the first one. And I was terrified because to me, everything had to be in place. That's not the way film works. But and so we did the first shot and I was like, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. And. My director of photography was so good. And he said, Sidlan, Susan's amazing. So I want you to just go back and tell her how amazing she is. Like, she is amazing. Tell her she can do this. And let's do one more shot. Just one more shot. She nailed it. She nailed it. We shot all of her stuff the whole rest of the day with her because we'd already done all the blocking. And she was so good. So we shot all of hers. 
And I cast the lead actor. And I couldn't have found anybody better. He was so much better than the first guy. And Susan came to set and helped guide all the eye lines and everything. It was amazing. But yeah, it's like in a book, nobody, nobody gets to just walk off. <laughs> but so I don't miss that part about film, but I do love the collaborative nature. And that's part of what's fun about book covers, too. Absolutely. I used to say that when we were working on these micro cinema movies that it was like summer camp. We we're all just having fun and doing some great things and with people you like. Lynn, we've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. This has been a blast tonight. I would tell everybody to go to and look at lynnhansonart.com. You're going to see some amazing covers. Definitely subscribe to the newsletter. You're going to get once a month, and you're going to get some really cool stuff for doing that. Like I said, I've enjoyed the time that I've been getting your newsletter. It's been fantastic. It's just absolutely delightful. And this one of the other things that we didn't get to talk about the thing that I'm most looking forward to coming up is I'm actually taking a two month sabbatical from the middle of August to the middle of October. And I am going to make a whole bunch of stuff that's not book covers. That's just stuff I want to make. I have a, I have a friend who said, I'm going to go and hide out for a month at an Airbnb and write, do you want to come and make art? And I'm like, yeah. Where are we going? And she said, New Orleans. And I said, I would love to go and spend a month in New Orleans. And so the extra time in between lets me work. I'm going to work on my store and some other things to get everything together. But we're going to spend a month in New Orleans making whatever the heck I want. I can't wait. Wow. I can imagine how inspirational that will be for a horror artist. It's magical. It's going to be fantastic because it's, I'm so far booked out. And I said, this is it. I'm putting the line in the sand and everything else is going to hold because I need an opportunity to grow and build my skills and and let many different kinds of things inspire me. And so I'm really looking forward to it. I don't think everybody understands that you're never done learning. You're never done exploring. It's something that is continuous forever. Especially in the creative field, I think. I take art classes every week. Wow. So I take new art classes just to continue to build my skills and to help me think about things in a different way. And I think if you stop trying to learn and grow, you might as well just pull the lid on over the coffin right now. (laughs) We're not going to take up any more of your time, but you know what? I love that you're going to take the sabbatical. I would love to talk to you afterwards to see what you came up with. Would you ever want to come back and on the show? Because we'd love to talk oh, to you again. Oh, I'd love to. That'd I'd be love awesome. to. That I, there's awesome. so many cool things that I have on the horizon. And I love getting these opportunities to, to talk to folks and, and share what has me excited. And let them share what's exciting for them. It's a delight. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that sounds great. We're going to let you go. We really <laughs> appreciate your time. And you have a great evening. And we'll talk again. All right. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Thanks, Lynn. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late. Some
Watch your 